Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Today's episode is all about the four-day work week fad or fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That's the big question of the day. So how about some yes. housekeeping? So as always, thank you to our listeners. Um, continue to feel free to contact us via indigotogether.com slash contact. Yeah. Last week's episode, we devoted just to some listener input. So uh, you know, send us a, a note and we'd love to hear from you. Comments, suggestions, ideas, uh, anything like that. Yeah, throw a rotten tomato digitally. <laughs> it's it's all good. <laughs> or a fresh tomato. <laughs> yeah, don't make caprese on our side. So um, yeah, we only grow from uh, listener referrals. That's really, I mean, I think we spent like 12 bucks on Facebook ads once or something, but yeah, we, you guys are the ones that are the rocket fuel for this ship. Um, so if you could share on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, heck, put it on your OkCupid okay <laughs> profile <laughs> or eHarmony for you commitment-minded <laughs> folks, right? Um, I guess, I guess the uh, Tinder's popular. I don't know how you could get a podcast uh, I, I, on I, Tinder, I, I but um, <laughs> I don't know what any of these things mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we've got a whole lot of ideas in the works. So we've got LinkedIn live sessions, uh, Facebook live sessions, YouTube live sessions, meetups, stuff like that. But you got to be on our email list or following us on Facebook or LinkedIn to know That's about right. these yeah. things. And so, the way to get on our email list, just go to indigotogether.com and you'll see right on that page, just scroll down a little bit and there's a, um, a form that you can fill out to hop on our email list. Super easy for our Facebook page. Just search The Indigo Podcast on Facebook, uh, or just if you want to go directly, it's facebook.com slash The Indigo Podcast. Yeah, and, you know, I'd gotten off Facebook for a long time, but it was like, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm back on Facebook for this podcast, so yay, yay Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, but actually, it's surprising how many people reach out and find us through that means. So to our Facebook um, followers, appreciate yes. that. So I think that's good for housekeeping. So. so what are we going to talk about today yes. in this episode? So today back? we are going to talk about this whole idea of the four-day work week. We're going to talk about the history of the four-day work week and what it is. Uh, we're also going to talk about some different types of working schedules. We're going to talk about uh, some of the implications of different industries, some issues of profitability and ethics as it relates to uh, this idea of the four-day work week. And then we're going to talk about some implications for individuals, for managers, for executives, for board members, uh, to really try to get our heads and our ideas around this this whole um you know, situation of the four day work week. Yeah. So let's talk about some history here on work yeah. week. So who started the dang 40 hour <laughs> thing anyway? Well, uh, there's actually kind of a long history on it. And I think what's really cool, and you found some of this, you did a little digging and um, is that people have long thought that our work week was just going to keep on getting shorter and shorter and shorter. 
so, you know, you pointed out that, you know, in 1928, the economist John Maynard Keynes predicted a 15 hour work week within a century. So, you know, here it is 2020. So I guess in 2028, uh, if uh, Keynes was correct, then we're going to have a 15 hour work week in the next eight years. Not going to happen. Um, and in 1965, a U.S. Senate subcommittee predicted an even shorter 14 hour work week by 2000. Oh. Woohoo! A whole oh, extra yeah. hour. Yeah. What's with seven weeks of seven vacation, weeks of vacation. No less. <laughs> Yeah. So there's this idea that kind of, I think, as progress continues, as whatever, whatever that means, right? Uh, t- as technology advances and so forth, uh, that leisure time was going to increase. And the. Yeah. And I think it could, right? If you want to live in a like no air condition, no power, dirt floored, log cabin on some BLM land. I mean, that's... You probably could do a 14-hour work week. You probably could. (laughs) Or if you found a way to become uh, individually wealthy and then just outsourced a bunch of stuff and just didn't work. Yeah. Um, What's it? I mean, it is a really interesting idea that, you know, uh, over time, are we going to experience more and more leisure time? Um, Hasn't really been the case. Uh, Even though, you know, we aren't necessarily working for 100 hours a week uh, in the coal mines anymore. Um, yeah, you know, we like to to quote the uh, famous YouTuber ContraPoints. We like shiny mm. things. And so we we now have to work uh, for right, them. Right, right. And so uh, let's just talk through kind of, you know, where this started in the 19th century with a brief timeline of this idea of the 40-hour work week. So where did that come from, Chris? Yeah, so early 18th say 1817-ish, right? So people are working like 80 to 100 right. hour weeks. That's that's a long time. You know, one of the things that people talk about is like labor-saving device devices like the vacuum cleaner and, um, you know, the mm-hmm. washing machine and, and stuff like that, you know, helped buy back because we were just working so many hours. And then you still had to do you know, the amount of hours to cover your subsistence was right. long, right? Um, but then, you know, we go up to like Ulysses S. Grant, which is like 1870-ish, um, 1869, I think is the exact date here. Um, he issued a proclamation guaranteeing eight-hour workdays to government mm. employees. And, you know, wow, what a recruitment right. tool. <laughs> For government workers back right. then, and that, right? And that, and that you know that encouraged private sector uh, workers to push for those rights uh, because they're like, hey, like I could go work in the federal government and have an eight hour eight hour work day, um, you know. So why not get that in the private sector? Yeah, then you know maybe some of the spouses of government workers were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> now this person's home early. Yeah, what are we, now we actually have to talk <laughs> to each other. <laughs> you know, back in the old days, we just put that jack yeah. wagon to work and then yeah. he went to bed. <laughs> so so that takes us all the way up to 1940, where the 40 hour work week becomes That's U.S. Right. law. Yeah. So, you know, basic stuff like if you work over 40 hours, some people are going to yep. get some. And that time. actually originally started in 1938 with the. Um, passing of the Fair Labor Standards Act, also known as FLSA, right, um, right. which had a 44-hour work week in there, and then that went to 40 hours in 1940. Uh, and uh, this was a pretty big piece of legislation. I mean, in addition to mandating a um, shorter work week, it also uh, you know, had a lot of stuff in there about 
um, child labor and other things like that, right? So uh, what's what's also important to remember, though, is that this idea of mandating the 40-hour work week as a legal requirement, uh, you know, this doesn't apply to everybody uh, because there are people who are subject to this law and there are people who are not subject to this law. So if you are an executive, a person with certain administrative responsibilities, uh, what we consider a creative or learned, learned professional, uh, these are, are exemptions to that law. So, you know, if you're, ma- if you're making, a, uh, you know, more than 100 grand a year, chances are you are not going to be held to this idea of the 40-hour the work week. Um, we'll, put, we'll post a uh, link to a really helpful document from the Department of Labor um, that actually shows you know, what constitutes an exemption from this, because employers can actually get themselves in a lot of trouble if they misclassify people. If they say, this person is exempt from this law, so we don't have to pay them overtime if they work more than 40 hours, but it turns out that they really should be paying them, then guess what? They're going to have to pay them all this back pay and all this other kind of stuff. So as an employer, you don't want to misclassify your jobs as being exempt or non-exempt from FLSA. Yeah, so we'll do a labor fact sheet. Sherm is yep. another good resource for people that need technical information on that. So just want to throw out a warning flag uh, there. But um, Ben, so we were digging through some stuff on mm-hmm. these work schedules and stuff. And in the California Management yeah. Review back in 1975, we, we got a quote That's right. out of That's here. right. So again, this is from 1975. Um, in the California Management Review, this article, and I quote, states, the four-day work week has been one of the mo- more widely debated topics in business in recent years. On one hand, it has been heralded as a momentous social innov- innovation that provides the employee with a choice in the matter in which he earns his daily bread. On the other hand, it has been decried as just another management tactic to undermine the advances that have been achieved by labor in the areas of hours of work per day and per week. Most likely, the truth lies somewhere between these extremes. I just think this was great because, you know, 1975, they were saying this has been highly debated and so forth. And, you know, it's now 45 years later, uh, a number of companies are trying this. And they're, you know, it's kind of coming back. The pendulum of these fads kind of comes and goes. And it seems like there's been a a recent re-emergence of interest in this idea of the four-day work week. Yeah, and you know, hotly debated. I I don't know a whole lot of people that sit around debating this heavily because it's so complex. Yeah, it really is. So let's talk about some different types of work schedules rather, you know, rather than just chopping off a day uh, with the gig economy and a whole bunch of different stuff. We, we've got a bunch of different types of work schedules. So Ben, what are some of the work yeah, schedules? Yeah, so one of them is flex time where people, you know, are permitted and uh, encouraged to work in in a more flexible manner, um, choosing uh, with, perhaps within some parameters, usually within some parameters, when they're choosing to work. Uh, so it could be, you know, different start and stop times of the day uh, or some other arrangement that an employer makes with employees for when they're going to actually do their work, not adhering necessarily to a strict, uh, you know, show up at eight, leave at five or something similar like that for everybody. So that's flex time. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of software developers that are on that, you know, they code at home yeah, type yeah. thing. And then the ne- another one is uh, the compressed work week. So what, what do we mean when we say that? Well, you know, you're just going to do, you'll, you'll still do the hours, right? So if you're a 40 hour person, you may do four 10 hour days 
rather right. than five eight hour right. days. Exactly. Um, and then we could, you know, another type of work schedule uh, is just the, uh, you know, a variation in terms of the actual total number of hours that a, a person works for a week. Um, you know, it could be the the thirty hour work week or something like that. Um, and then there's. Yeah, Tim Ferriss likes to talk about the four-hour four hour work, work week. week. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even. I don't even think I've done that on vacation ever. Um, that's interesting, right? It, there's just this idea of like I don't know. You'll get like the movie Office Space. Did, you remember that movie, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So not gonna work here anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a time earlier in my career when I was working in a cubicle farm and I, I, I couldn't watch yeah. that movie <laughs> because I would just cry <laughs> because it's just like, Oh my God, my life is so horrible right, right. now. <laughs> Hit close to home. And, and so when you, when you get to those like soul sucking moments that we all mm-hmm. have, and, and hopefully we don't have to live in them for long. Some people do. My heart goes out to those. Um, but you know we we could be sucked in by this idea of oh my gosh wouldn't it be amazing if the work week was only f- I mean you get you're gonna get uh, some oh book yeah sales that's what I was gonna say there's there's it. no um no question that you'll sell a lot of books with a, a four hour work week it's kind of like you know the eight minute abs um <laughs> so it's like I mean I work on my abs for eight minutes I I still they're still hidden under the beer you know <laughs> right right so. Um, I mean, so that's one idea in the, the flexible work schedule or, uh, you know, different types of work schedules. Uh, but it is really interesting also to think about this whole idea of when people are working and where they're working and so forth in an age in which, you know, we are moving much more towards having contingent labor. We're having part-timers. We're having contract labor. Um, we're having people who are part of the gig economy, so to speak. Yeah, the yeah. gig economy. Uh, yeah, Buzzword. I mean, but it's but it is a thing, right? And um, that's that's certainly challenging our traditional notion of you are only working when you are physically present in a certain place for you know five eight hour uh, work days a week, right? Right. I and it, it's. I mean, all of these different things, you can basically slice and dice the hours you donate to uh, companies in return for cash, right? You know, there's a whole Mm -hmm. gamut there. So somebody will invent new names for these. But the important thing is there's different types of work schedules. Um, But we got some notable experiments on the four-day work week. And, you know, I feel like I see these every couple years or so, and it'll get like one of those Forbes or Business Insider, you know, that, you know, you cure cancer with uh, Windex and this one easy trick, you know. It's, it's, you know, that kind of like, you know, company goes to four hour work day and saw 40% jump in productivity. So like one of the most recent example is Microsoft uh, did that and in Japan, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, they talk about 40% jump in productivity. Right. Um, uh, let's see that Utah where I live, you know, they adopted uh, four 10 hour days for mm. their workers and um, it was really successful. Um, you know, first they were doing it because the cost of gas and stuff okay. was so high. Um, but and they did get a pretty good uptick in productivity. But then they had an audit a few years later, and 
hey, all those productivity and savings and all that kind of stuff just really mm. wasn't there. So they went back to the five day, <laughs> right? Except except for a couple cities yeah. and departments, right? You know, some lucky ones were left or whatever. Um, another one, this was pretty big. There's just a state company, a state planning company in New Zealand. Um, what was it? Gardner. Yeah, the Perpetual guy. Guardians, the right. name of the company. Yeah, per, uh, Perpetual Gardens. No, it's Perpetual Guardian. Right? Okay, cool. So Perpetual Guardian... Anyway, that's the guy, uh, the CEO is this guy named Andrew Barnes. And, you know, he's made some good uh, publicity going around and talking about this and dedicating, you know, being a four-day week evangelist, kind of. Um, I see other notable people, Andrew Yang. He loves this stuff. Um, so if there's any Yang gangers <laughs> out there, great. Or, um, by, but, no. but, you know, he's no longer a presidential candidate. Uh, as as of this recording, he is now a uh, CNN commentator. So, yeah, Good work if you can <laughs> get it, I guess. But um, Shake Shack tried it. So, I mean, a lot of people have played mm -hmm. um, with this. But the problem and the reason I get a little bit cynical when I see Business Insider or Forbes talking about this stuff is it's it's those catchy not qualified statements like you know you'll see it's like doctors discover red meat cures cancer right. and then like a year later doctors discover red meat causes cancer these things are so complex right. you know cancer doesn't come down to yeah. steak yeah well i mean because <laughs> you think about it from a scientific scientific perspective in order to establish actual causality between you know variable a and variable b you you need uh, a handful of conditions in place, right? You need for there to actually be some relationship between the two, so what we call covariance between the two variables. Uh, there needs to be some time precedence, like thing A needs to happen before thing B for it to cause it. Um, but you also, and this is even more important and probably, I think, even more overlooked by some of the oversimplifications that we see, like, you know, red meat causes cancer or red meat doesn't cause cancer or whatever, or a four-hour work week, great, four-hour or four-day uh, work week, good or bad, is that there are omitted variables, right? And that's what you mean when you're talking about this comp complexity. There are other things that could be influencing what's going on here that we're not measuring, that we're not talking about. And so the decision, if you're thinking as an executive, should I try this four-day work week thing, um, really needs to come down to uh, a number of variables related to your specific industry, your specific situation, um, because you're not necessarily going to get, you know, the same results as another company that tries it. Yeah. And, and I get where people that are evangelists for this kind of stuff, um, it's the same kind of stuff we see with political organization. Well, you haven't really given capitalism a chance fully because there's these two mitigating factors or, or you haven't really given socialism a chance fully because it was just quasi, you know, well, you didn't hold on to your four-day work week mm -hmm. long enough. I, nobody's established a clear how to run an experiment with this in your organization so that you're a thousand percent certain that you're doing the right thing. It's this is just not one of those black and white cut and dry yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, because uh, theoretically, what you would have to do if you wanted to show that with a little bit more of definitive insight is that you would have to, you know, find uh, a group of companies that you randomly select, perhaps, that would be willing to try it in a group that didn't, and you'd compare the two, or one company, maybe you randomly select certain 
locations or employees to go through the uh, the four day work week and some others that you wouldn't. Um, and you know most companies don't have the appetite or the the willingness to uh, to try that kind of nat- that type of experimentation. Um, yeah, let's jointly across five different competitors yeah, right. do this. And up, this one had a group of kayakers that likes to get off on Fridays to go <laughs> kayaking. So they totally skewed the results. How would you have known that there was like thirty kayakers on one team? Exactly. Or, yeah. Ugh. Right. And, you know, mess. another big problem with some of these claims around the benefits of the four day work week or other related phenomena is that um, it could be that it's it's a short lived uh, benefit. And and actually, that has been shown to some degree that, you know, some of these outcomes that they thought were really positive in the beginning didn't really last. It could be part of what we call in psychology, the observer of, uh, effect, right? So when we pay attention to what people are doing, and we, we give them, you know, kind of this novel thing that we're doing to them, uh, that there are some positive outcomes that come from that. But again, these things may not last very long. Right. It's It's like, yeah, a diligent student when the teacher's sitting in the class, but when they go out to the hallway, you, you know, you like to hit Timmy with a spitball. Well, of course. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh darn you, Timmy. <laughs> cool. So let's um let's talk about kind of how industry profitability and ethics kind of go into exploring yeah, this topic. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting thinking about different industries and and how you might actually be able to try something like this because we're not necessarily saying that the four day work week is a horrible idea we're saying that it's a it's a tricky thing to measure uh, and that you should exercise some caution and some thoughtfulness if you're going to decide to do this but you know if you are for example in a retail environment you've got to have somebody there who's just providing that coverage you know in order to turn the lights on open the store uh, you know be there in case somebody walks in um, you can't just necessarily, you know, shut down the place for uh, one day a week. You've got to be thoughtful about it. Uh, so industry definitely matters. Yeah. You know, if you need to go get a marriage license on a Friday because mm-hmm. you're in Vegas, you know, they, somebody's got to be there to give right. you one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, mm-hmm. now let's talk about like shareholder value and profitability metrics. Now, you know, earlier parts of kind of the business literature and thinking about business you know, we talk about how companies exist to maximize shareholder value, right? Um, which generally has some kind of profitability metric. Is that, you know, earnings per share or, you know, what whatever that's going to be. But part of that is you have this whole gamut of employees there that also want to participate in that, that system. So if you're able to drive all of the... Um, if you're able to continue to dr- get your labor at the lowest, lowest, lowest cost, eventually there's a curve to that where you start get the, getting diminishing mm-hmm. returns. That's going to impact who and the types of people you can recruit, right? Um, it's going to you know, impact your kind of brand out in the workplace, right? So I, I don't know anything about the inner workings of Amazon. Like I've never been to a fulfillment center or something like that. And so they may actually have the most ethical way of managing their employees ever. I I don't know. Um, But public, yeah, but public perception is, at least among some people, is that they don't. It's garbage. It's, it's you know, I mean, 
and I don't know anybody that's canceled their, you know, Prime <laughs> membership over it. So maybe that says something about us as a people. But uh, yeah, I, st- I still like my fast things in the mail. Absolutely. <laughs> but it, these are things that weigh into a broader social conversation that we're having on what kind of um, workforce, you know, since our podcast is dedicated to people flourishing at work and beyond. Um, Looking only at one metric of how much can I get for as little as possible, I can't say that's the best way to go about thinking about this stuff. However, if you make, um, I don't know, something that's a commodity that could be made overseas as well, like something like Mm -hmm. copper wire, there's only so much extra you can charge for that because of proximity. So we get copper wire orders, and I'm just using this as a random example. We get copper wire orders because we can deliver them next day. Whereas if they ordered a million miles of copper wire from an overseas entity, it may take us six to eight weeks Mm -hmm. to get it, right? But there's only so much extra you can charge for that convenience thing. And so workers in that kind of industry, because of profitability and going concern issues, like they're kind of in a crucible, right? Right. right. And, I, and I think that's where, um, you know, management has to think long and hard about what kind of employer brand they're going to have, right? So even though you know, a highly uh, competitive environment, you know, razor thin margins, um, you know, if you're working everybody to death and you're making this, it's just a horrible place to work, that reputation is going to get out there. Um, and it's going to be hard to keep those people. Um, and you've also just got to think about whether or not that's the right thing to do or not, uh, how, how you treat your folks. Yeah. So I was doing some workforce strategy for this large organization and I was watching to where, and this is really typical. And as somebody that, um, likes free as much as possible, having free market stuff happen, right. Um, not that it can, can be fully uh, unconstrained. But one of the things that employers do is they ask you how much you made at your last job. Sure. Right. And so, you know, what if, what if you took a, a job at, you know, the mall, so you could study computer programming, then you delivered like awesome projects uh, for a nonprofit so to validate your skills. And then you go to apply and they, you know, because this is what I've seen in a mm-hmm. lot of companies, right? Okay, so you made sixty thousand. Great. Even though we've this job role play, pays eighty to ninety five, depending on experience, we're just going to offer them. You know, they made sixty thousand. We'll offer them sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, you know, the better people will like immediately figure out somebody that'll pay them a market wage, but it. There's this this idea and this philosophy, and I think this is why a lot of workers have a kind of a stink eye about uh, some organizations, is is these organizations literally are treating them like chattel. What's the littlest I can right. get you for? And that's that's not the kind of collaborative alliance that I think is actually most beneficial for building winning company cultures. Sure, sure. You know, another thing that we we discussed when we were trying to think about this episode and this idea of the four day work week is that you know people get used to things. <laughs> this is, yeah, hedonic adaptation. Right. We, we get used to those things that we enjoy in our lives, um, you know, and then once they get taken away, we really get irate. 
you know, so you think about the fact that maybe there's some sort of convenience you have in your life. Maybe it's something about your car or some technology. Um, and, you know, you probably really loved it when you first got it. And that joy and elation probably subsided a little bit over time. But if I took that away from you, you'd probably be very upset. Uh, and, you know, you, I think that's an important thing to think about for any organization that's going to try something like a four-day work week or anything, um, anything related to kind of how they treat their people or you know, some of these outrageous perks and benefits that you hear about at some organizations, um, particularly in the tech industry, is what would happen if we have to take this away? Um, and that could really cause some problems uh, for, for people's morale and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, another way of thinking about hedonic adaptation is, you know, I've seen that somebody steps up from a manager to a director mm -hmm. role or they something happens and they have a windfall of a much bigger salary than they've ever had before. Right. So they go from making 60 to 120 or something sure. like that. And so they're, they're double. Immediately, it's like, yes, everything feels awesome. You know, nothing but blue skies, that kind of thing. And and then six to eight months later, you know, they got the bigger house. They got a car payment that's probably stupid. They got the country club membership. They got, I mean, we would be scandalized. If I was in college and looked at how much my cell phone bill is, I'd have been like, right. what? You're paying north of $100 for mm -hmm. cell phone? <laughs> right? And. And so, like, we adapt to these things. Like, we didn't have pocket supercomputers, right, you know, in the mm -hmm. 90s. And that costs some of our wealth and our time. So the, the overall trend, despite what you may hear um, bandied about by certain people, is worker hours are down. We are not working 80 to 100 mm -hmm. hours. Do I think that's awesome? Yes. People can reinvent themselves. People have time to learn stuff. Leisure begets mm -hmm. creativity. Um, for some a people. lot of good stuff on that. Yeah. I mean, if you're crushing candy with your free yeah. time, oh man, <laughs> you know, but in aggregate, if you give a group of people some free time, you're going to have more creativity coming out. Maybe it only comes out of five people, but you get it out mm -hmm. of the five people you wouldn't have otherwise. And also median wages are mm -hmm. up. Um, but we adapt to those kinds of things. So, um, you know, when we look at the idea of like flex time schedules and all that stuff, you know, the productivity jump is generally happens um, mm -hmm. right away. And like you said, that could be observer effect. Sometimes it's just having something that breaks up yep. the monotony. Yep. Right. Um, but just because that those those benefits diminish over time doesn't mean there aren't existential and cultural sure. benefits. And so you need to be thinking about, you know, what what those right. look like. Yeah, pretty uh, universally. I mean, people, when they're given more freedom, uh, you know, in terms of either having a four-day work week or having, um, you know, some flex time, the ability to choose when they work and so forth, that does usually increase job satisfaction, especially initially. Uh, and like you said, there are some probably bigger benefits here in terms of people being able to uh, do other things with their time. Um, and, you know, the whole idea here, I think is really important to, to, to point out is, you know, the idea is that, you know, there's certain things that you have to get done as an organization. If people are getting them done and there's nothing else for them to do necessarily at that moment, why are they still there? Send them home, you yeah. know? 
or, or actually or, or train them. I mean, you've been talking, we have no time for training. Well, well, there uh, you go. Yeah, right? I, 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 there is, there are so many small moments of, and, and big moments of non-productivity in everybody's work day. Like, I'm sorry, like, uh, especially in the modern workplace for knowledge workers, uh, you know, you, you can <laughs> yeah, stare at yeah. your computer screen and act like you're working, um, pretty darn easily. And, um, or, you know, these, these little moments where you're, uh, you know, not actually being productive. Um, and, and, you know, if you can be productive more at, in during specific times, and then during those times when you don't, when you, after you've gotten the work done, if you have a more of a results based, uh, mentality about this, um, then, you know, the reward should be that, Hey, you get to work on something else. That's cool. Or you get to, um, perhaps, you know, not work that anymore. Um, yeah. Versus like, you know, when I worked in a call center, you know, straight out of college type thing, uh, for Dell computers, actually, um, man, they, they, you have this button you can press on your phone called ox, which means calls from the queue mm -hmm. will come to you right and oh if your ox time was too high i mean you're gonna get right. hammered right um but as you're just like call after call after call the ox button calls <laughs> to you. i can imagine now that's right. aux not yeah. ox but um you know like there are roles where and you know this is something that really kind of there's a disconnect so I, you know i do a lot with tech companies and you know executives and stuff a lot of them have never had to work in a environment where every moment of like bathroom breaks at these call centers right. are monitored. Right. And well, yeah, when you're in a grind, you know, I'd love to sit in a stall and just cry a little yeah. bit. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes like if it's a rough day, you know, I, I broke up with my girlfriend and I still have mm -hmm. to answer calls in a way that's just monitored, monitored, monitored. And that creates a different type of culture and stuff that that you know some people can do well in, some people can't. And I, I think you know there's a disconnect. And you know knowledge workers they have a certain perspective and just I don't know what do we call them worker workers um, have a different quality of life around hours and and workplace. But like the data on this, you know we can't prove that long long hours are horrible for your right. health and yeah, well-being. Yeah, not necessarily. You know, again, this is a very hard thing to measure. And, uh, you know, what's probably most important is to take into account the work context. Uh, you know, do you have a work environment that's that's safe, that is uh, relatively enjoyable? Um, that's very important for long-term um, stress, for long-term satisfaction and so forth, uh, as well as commitment to the organization, uh, as well as the work itself. You know, so if the work itself is absolutely monotonous and boring and soul sucking, that's pro that probably will have an effect on your own well-being and, and perhaps your health over time. Uh, but just sheer work hours alone. Uh, I mean, because some people love their work. I like my work. I work way more than 40 hours a week. Um, and I'm that's OK because. I, yeah. And, and it's I awesome. Like, I like what I do. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's it's very important. Again, don't get caught up if you're thinking about. Uh, should we do this four day work week thing or some other management fad? Um, you know, don't don't just look at oh well, it, you know, it worked in this company or you know, there's uh, it's much more complex than that. And I think what's even more important is to come back to what's the work context, uh, 
is it is it one that is helping people be productive and helping them flourish? Is the work itself designed in a way that's giving people variety and meaning and autonomy or not? Uh, so those are important things to consider uh, um, from a management perspective. Cool. So let's let's move to talking about implications for individuals, uh, managers, execs, and right. board members, right? So implications for individuals. Sure. So when we're thinking about these ideas of uh, flexible work schedules, when we're thinking about this idea of the four-day work week, um, you know, this has an impact on people based upon their life situation, right? So we see some uh, impacts, for example, on gender pay disparity, that it uh, becomes less when you have more um, availability for flex time and so forth, uh, perhaps because in, in most situations, um, women tend to have more of the domestic responsibilities at home if they have a family. Um, Guys, anytime you want to pick up sure the thing. slack. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, I, <laughs> like, how do my wife say? It's like, hey, hey, dude, anytime you want to chip in more, I'm not right, going to exactly. stone you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, yeah, I think just on a side note, if you are uh, in a committed relationship and have a family and so forth, um, be a good teammate <laughs> because that'll make life better and career stuff better for yeah. both of you. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was, well, it wasn't funny, but I was sick for the past two weeks in various ways. And, uh, my wife said to me this morning, she said, I'm so glad you're better. It was really terrible having to do the dishes all the time. Cause that's kind of my little thing. I do the dishes. Um, so yeah, cause you won't let anybody else load the dishes, Ben. You, you, it has to be your way or it's wrong. Now, now let me tell oh, the listeners gosh. this. So, this is so, so true. I, Whenever I'm in the Cleveland area, I just stay at Ben's <laughs> house. And it's his family is amazing. Like, his kids are so awesome that it's, like, embarrassing <laughs> to me as a parent, honestly. But, but, but you know, when I'm there, I, you know, because I travel a lot. So it's nice to be with a family sometimes. And so I'm like, hey, I'm going to throw in and, and do the dishes, like, like at home, you know, type thing. And, and but what are you doing? Hey, you're loading it <laughs> all wrong. Well, and I'm, I'm laughing to... <laughs> I'm laughing too because I did that to my mom uh, last weekend. She was loading the dishwasher. I said, well, those cups, they go best in this one little spot. Of course, it was just like, I was like, you know, she's trying to help and I'm being a jerk. But yeah. And obviously, as weird as I am, I'll never have a normal (laughs) business partner. So I I just accept accept it. it. You got what you got. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So these domestic responsibilities are part of this. And flex time, um, maybe having compressed work week. Uh, you know, is is can be good for people um, who have other stuff going on in their lives. Um, elder care, elder, elder care, that's a great one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that one up because you know we have people who are living longer. Um, we have more people who are, you know, especially not, not only now but in the future, we're going to have a lot of people who are needing to spend time. A lot of people who are working who need to spend time in some way or another taking care of their parents um, or some other elder um, relative or something like that. And, you know, if you can have some flexibility in the working schedule, um, those people are going to really benefit from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then like the employee life cycle. So I've seen this with like some of the startups that have younger entrepreneur founders and they hire a bunch of, you know, people their own age and they're able to hard charge because they're either dual income, no kids, right? Or, you know. All they've got is work. They're fresh out of college. They're hungry for knowledge and experience. Maybe they're experiencing growth in that segment or industry. And so it's all hands on deck. But eventually they grow and they they hire somebody. They hire, hire their first middle-aged person. And he's like, yeah, I, I'd like to get off early on Wednesday because my kid's got a mm-hmm. soccer game. 
And I remember watching these guys. They're like, do what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But but that's not, let me just tell you, if you think that's the world we should live in where your life is nothing but grinding it out, like it can be so fulfilling, especially if you're taking market share, landing big deals, like that's awesome, but you're missing out on other parts of life. And that doesn't mean you don't have to go with the normal script of get married and have two and a half kids, but you're missing stuff like volunteering as a big brother or big mm -hmm. sister. Um, sitting on the board of a nonprofit that has a great social mission in your community. Right. Um, all of these kinds of things, um, you gotta have that broader perspective and it's so easy to get lost, right? Especially if you're, you know, an individual that, oh, I just need to prove my worth, prove my worth, prove my worth. You know, it's easy to lose that stuff, but Hey, guess what? You got a partner, right? You got elder care issues, possibly, you may decide to start a family or adopt. And, you know, your employee life cycles, the amount of hours and how hard you can hit it is a little bit different in your 70s than it is yeah. in your 20s. Well, and I, it, it just, I would and say it it's particularly be. different in your 20s than it is maybe in your uh, mid 30s, 40s, when if like if you have kids at kind of typical times, like, just having four of them myself and you know you you have two kids and it's like there's a lot going on and you know depending on the level your level of health and interest you might be at the, at the age of 70 um more productive than than when you're 40 uh <laughs> or at least more available um mentally and perhaps physically uh you know depending on what what's going on at home so uh i having some flexibility yeah helps all it of does. these scenarios. It does. And so, so I think, you know, whereas we kind of came down on the, you know, it's a little bit of a faddish thing earlier. Uh, there are some different aspects of these, these ideas of the four day work week or other types of flexibility and work schedules that really are fabulous. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think another really good point here to remember is that, you know, many employers have employees who, you know, are also staying connected to their work. Uh, they are available through technology, you know, answering emails, et cetera, um, at home, uh, after work hours and so forth. And so it's like, you know, are, are you, are, are you, are they actually working a 40 hour week right now anyway? Right. Yeah. You know, thanks. Thanks for the 32 hour, uh, reduced schedule and you're still paying me the same, but now I'm available at weird yeah. times. Yeah. Um, yeah, and does anybody even work forty hours anymore? I, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think there I are know. a number of. Well, if you are subject to the <laughs> to the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? If you're if you're in a role where that is the law, um, then most employers are probably paying fairly close attention to how much you're working because then they need to pay you overtime if you go beyond that. Um, but I would say, you know, uh, in yeah. in more uh, you know knowledge work types of of situations in professional environments, executives for sure. Um, it, it's very hard to even constant, you know, what, what does it mean to be working even, you know, you th think about my job, uh, take my professor job. You know, one of my jobs is to, um, write and to develop ideas and publish research and so forth. Well, you know, sometimes I, I think about these things and have good ideas when I'm like on a hike. And it, it, so I'm kind of working while I'm hiking around, but you wouldn't know it. <laughs> so it's very hard to measure whether or not people are actually working sometimes. And we have um, this connectivity that we never used to uh, at other points in history. Right. And and people have side yep. hustles, right? 
And one of the things with the gig economy is, you know, they don't have to pay for times you're not mm. active, right? So, like, if you're a delivery person, you get paid by the delivery. Well, you may be sitting around for three hours that you're not getting paid for waiting yeah. for delivery. But you can't be 100% present. And so even for those that, you know, people are monitoring overtime and don't want to cut overtime overly much, um, which we see a lot of manufacturers get in the habit. Oh, well, we had tons of overtime. Everybody pluses up their lifestyle to that overtime mm. paycheck. And then somebody comes in, you know, VC firm buys it. Cuts all the overtime out, and then you got a riot, labor riot on your hands because everybody was used to and needs that money just mm. to make rent, right? But even the people that only work for 40 hours, everybody kind of has got a hot side hustle. Or I can't say everybody, but I know a lot of people with side hustles. Yeah, I would say it's becoming increasingly common, right? So, uh, you know, another thing that I think we need to talk about some, you know, another implication for people here. Um, if you are in a flexible work environment with regard to working hours, be it a compressed work week or flex time or some other arrangement, um, is that you've got to do a little extra impression management if you have a weird schedule. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So used to deal with this when talking to execs on, you know, they're going to take, you know, there was a time when everybody went to India if you were like an mm. IT executive. Um, so you need to know how to like spin up software teams, all that kind of stuff over there. But one of the things that we would coach on is, you know, how are you going to manage, how do you make sure you don't get marooned in India? Like, Oh wait, Phil. Yeah, that's right. He's still in <laughs> India. You know, where's, where's Phil? Well, he's been in India for two years, like just grinding away. Like guys, you know, I've, I've been requesting to come back yeah. to the home. Or, or just, it could just be an out of sight, out of mind thing where the person who is, um, you know, either working in a disparate location or working from home or working a different schedule just gets forgotten about with, with regard to, uh, things like their performance. Um, you know, it, it's, if you aren't around, if you aren't physically, you know, there, sometimes it can be easy for other people to forget you. So you as a, as a, as an individual contributor or whatever in that situation, as a person with a different schedule, you need to be proactive. And I think, um, remind people right. of your existence, <laughs> you know, um, be it via, you know, strategically sending, uh, emails, chiming in on things, um, you know, requesting and having, uh, other types of, uh, maybe calls or, uh, you know, video chats and stuff like that, just to really be present. Um, so that people don't forget about you. It's unfortunate, but it is. Yeah. Impression management has to be deliberate. Yeah. So, you know, because it's easy to be like, well, what's Ben doing all day other than sitting around in his pajamas? That, that, that is what you I know. do. Yeah, playing crosswords <laughs> or something. Sudoku, right? <laughs> Which, you know, sorry for you Sudoku addicts. I, I never got into it. Anyway, but, but you know, so the manager hands out the work and then the work comes in. But, you know, managers, your manager, the, depending on the organization, will say like, well, what does your staff do all mm -hmm. day? Or because a lot of managers don't know how to manage remote work and that kind of stuff. And so those things like, oh, we need to do cuts. Well, Jimmy hasn't been in the office. So <laughs> poor Jimmy. Yeah. Just because that person had a different type of schedule. Right. Right. And then J Jimmy gets axed. And, you know, so one of the things you want to do is just say, great. Awesome. Glad to be working at home. Let's what's our meeting mm -hmm. schedule. Awesome. What kind of reports can I send to you? Now, if they said, ah, oh, just, just turn in your work, I would still check in with a once or twice a week 
here's what I got done this week. Here's what's coming up for me this next week. These are things I need help. You know, like Mm. a scrum meeting. What I did this week, what I'm doing next week, and these are the things that are in my way. Also, it's not just your manager you need to be managing. You need to let the person to your left and right, your teammates, Mm -hmm. right, know what you're doing so they don't get to sit there and guess. I think that's those are some excellent points. Uh, so if you are in that situation, be proactive, manage your impressions, and so forth. Uh, you know, another interesting piece of research we came across, and we'll, we're going to post a link to a number of different uh, citations and articles and so forth on these topics. But you know, too much flexibility might actually be counterproductive, right? If you have too much uh, too much say over all of these different things related to your work schedules, and if you give everybody just kind of free reign over it, it could create chaos within the work environment. And so uh, as an organization, you need to be careful about how you roll something like this out. Um, I think we can move now maybe to some implications of um, different work schedules, four-day work week types of issues for managers. Right. So I just want to say straight off the bat, managers, there's not like a easy Mac way to do this. You know, you add your water, pop it in the microwave, it's done. If you're going to play with these kinds of things, right? You've got skill sets you got to pick up um, on how to manage uh, complex work schedules, remote workers, those kinds of items. You also need to make sure that what you're doing with your team nests favorably with the handoffs and other teams and up and down effects that you have to Mm -hmm. sync with. Very true. Uh, And you're going to just also be dealing with another level of complexity uh, for yourself if everybody has differing schedules. Now, the benefits may be there uh, for for people um, in terms of their job satisfaction, in terms of uh, you know their life and so forth, uh, but you will be having some more complexity for yourself. That's not a reason to not consider alternative work schedules, um, four-day work week types of, of ideas, but you are going to have some more complexity there. Right. And if somebody you're like, hey, you're, you're going to work from home if you want. Yeah, I want to work from home. And they, they have, they aren't, you know, with the gusto coming to you. Awesome. Here's mm-hmm. my meeting schedule plan. Here's my reporting plan. You need to build that structure for the different types of work arrangements that you have on your team. And also making sure that it's not you that just knows, but ensure that that cross team communication is happening. The same thing that we talk about for the individual. If your manager doesn't do it, you do it. Well, if you're the manager, you need to make sure that your team is doing that. So if you have to speak to the output and the productivity of your team, or even justify further headcount, having that kind of stuff is going to be, you know, requisite for you to move forward in those areas. That's right. That's right. So if we move up a level, we've talked about some implications here for individuals. We've talked about implications for managers. Um, what about some implications for executives, for board members? Oh man, <laughs> I mean, this is this is where the rubber meets. I mean. Lots of times, everybody's important, right? But the people that can really shape this stuff are both the board of directors and the C-suite or very senior executives, right? Division heads, that kind of stuff. Um, This is where you set the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what I always think about is, you know, what kind of message are you sending to your people as a senior leader if you are emailing them at 11 p.m., if you are, uh, you know, doing things that are obviously showing that you're always on, um, you are very, I mean, I would say not just implicitly, but kind of explicitly in a way, uh, you know, setting this expectation that you, that you're always on, that you're always at work and so forth. And now I've known, of pe- I've known people who have 
deliberately said, well, I'm going to make sure I respond to that email at 3 a.m. just to show people how dedicated I am. And I mean, oh my the, sad, the, the, sad, <laughs> the sad thing I is it probably, it probably works a little bit, right? Um, yeah, Steve's such a hard charger. Look at his just early set, morning. Just set all of your, uh, your emails to auto-send at weird times of the day, you know? Yeah. No, I, listen, I know people yeah. that do that, and it's... Yeah, so yeah, but gosh. I mean, but the the reason they do it is it probably you know to some degree is part of that culture where if you demonstrate that you're always you know getting after it that you're somehow rewarded for that. So just remember, if you're an executive, if you're a board member, um, that your attitude and your approach towards the the work uh, the working hours um, really matters, and it will trickle down. Uh, you know, so that I've, I've heard and that of, could be totally good. You yes. may want a culture that people reply yeah. at the middle of the night. You, you right? may. It's just a decision you're making. Right there. now, I've I've also heard of executives um, who have consciously made the decision and put out to their people that look, I am not going to respond to emails between five and nine p.m. because I'm dealing with my kids at that point. Uh, you know, or something like that. And that, in turn, can also send a, a positive message throughout the organization uh, that, hey, that's okay for you to be off at some time. Right. And, you know, a lot of this, this is just big implica- implications for company strategy and HR strategy. When you decide what kind of company you want to mm-hmm. be, right, and what type of people you would like to recruit and retain retain there, you know, top software developer talent will seldom work in a poorly managed sweatshop, right? Um, Because they have options. Um, And when people have options, right? And that's, and that's kind of what you want a lot of your employees to be people that could work somewhere else, but choose to work where you're at. Um, Same thing. Do we want to take the brand hit on just trying to drive salaries as low as possible, right? right? Versus, hey, you know, we know you made 60000 in your last role, but we believe you can do this job. We want to hire you. This role plays 90 to 100. We're going to pay you 92. Right. You know, that that sends a signal into the marketplace. Glassdoor.com, people write. I mean, you can tell when they're like just a disgruntled employee, but you can also tell when somebody's like, you know, I this culture just wasn't for me because of the following, you know, those cultural signals are out there for potential workers and also HR strategy, you know, how they conduct interviews and that kind of stuff. If you don't want to have a lot of turnover, just be like, listen, we're going to be frank. This is a sweatshop (laughs) for the first three years. But if you can survive those first three years, these things open up to you. Okay. Like, you know, you can bake that in. Well, and actually being realistic about what the work environment is like, you know, both the good and the bad is a very important HR practice. You know, when you, when you talk about recruiting, when you talk about hiring and onboarding. Uh, excellent. You know, I think another good point that uh, needs to be made here at the senior level with regard to different work schedules is that you've also got to um, sell this to your external stakeholders. You've got to, if necessary, explain this to your clients, to your customers. Uh, you've got to be able to defend why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, with, when the earnings report, you know, you meet with the analyst or whatever are going to grill you. Hey, you brought in this work schedule and shares are down mm-hmm. X, you know. You can still sell your way past that lots of times, you know. Um, this is the type of company we're going to be. These kinds of elements need to be brought in there. And, you know, it's an ethical thing. You know, do you want 
do your employees deserve to have time with their yeah. family? Right. Uh, if they're going to work on Christmas, are they going to get a day near Christmas right. off or something? If that's culturally important to you. Um, yeah. There's, you just got to think about those ethical items of, of work and work-life balance. And, you know, this is, this used to be in business books. I haven't seen this in a while. It's probably there because I'm not in some of these like undergrad texts anymore. But when, at least in the US, when we allow you to incorporate, we say we want you to take risks to build something awesome that builds wealth for our countries, that builds wealth for you and your stakeholders, and builds wealth for your employees so they can right. participate. Um. If you fail in that, we don't come and take the shirt off your back and kick your family to the curb and take your house, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not how that, but there's an ethical opponent. Because we deputize you to be able to take that kind of risk and move forward, you owe something back to the broader community that you serve, be that sponsoring the Little League baseball team, Um but one place you can really do it is make sure that you are comfortable and dialed into the ethical implications of the work schedules and the work-life balance of your employees. That's well said. And I think it's an important um, consideration for any leader of any organization. And it goes into this whole idea of, you know, how do you want to be remembered? What kind of leader, what kind of person do you want to be? Uh, and how does that translate into your decisions for your organization? Yeah, Scrooge McDuck is not the way forward. At least that's That's my advice. Great. So today we talked about this whole idea. We centered on this idea of the four-day work week. Uh, And uh, where did we come down on it? Fad or fabulous? Uh, It's (laughs) both. It It depends. depends. Yes, (laughs) Uh, that's right. I think we talked about some reasons why it depends. The work context, the industry, uh, and how you manage it. Um, we talked about the history of the, this whole idea of the four-day work week. It is not something that is, uh, you know, new, actually. Um, people have been debating this for a long time. Uh, we talked about different types of work schedules. We talked about issues of the industry variance, uh, profitability and ethics. And then we wrapped up here with some implications for individuals, for managers, for execs and board members. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.